Scripture. And we will be in, we wrapped up chapter 8 last week, so we will be in 2 Corinthians 9, the first five verses this week. Um, if you are able, please, out of respect for the Lord, stand as we read this together, and I'll be reading from the ESV, starting in verse 9. Now it is super superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to engage with it, to be sharpened by it. We thank you for the gift that you give us of sanctification, of making us holier, of making us more like Jesus. We recognize that there is much in us that needs to be made holier. And so we ask that you would do that in this time. We ask that you would be glorified in this time, that this would be a continuation of our worship. Lord, that this would continue to be in praise of who you are. May the takeaway always be your glory and your majesty. We offer this to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we've got five verses uh, and some really, really cool details hidden in these verses. And so what we're going to do is what we do. We're going to go verse by verse through this. We're going to look at what God put in his word and his scripture for us to study, for us to know, to be sharpened by. And we're going to seek to, like I said in the prayer, praise God in this time, but then also be made more like Jesus. That is, that is God's will for our lives, our sanctification, becoming holier, being more like Him. We looked at it last week as we behold His face. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? As we behold His face, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So let that drive our hearts in this time. But the first thing that I want to draw our attention to is in verse 2. So what do we see? Oops. What do we see in verse 2? For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. That is a word, your zeal, that I really think the church has lost over the years. Uh, and when I say the church, I'm talking about the American church. I'm talking about the evangelical church in our context. I think we've lost zeal. I think we've lost an understanding of what zeal is. And so, therefore, we've lost an understanding of how it should shape our lives. C.S. Lewis once said that if you want someone to forget a way to live, teach them to forget the word. We do not long allow to shape what we do not remember to say. And that's just a fancy word, way of saying it. You know, when we take something out of our vocabulary, when we take something out of our worldview, when we take something out of our focus, well, it's really not going to influence us. It's not going to direct us. It's not going to shape us. And I think zeal, if we're honest, is missing today. 
I think an understanding of what zeal is and its place of primacy in the life of the Christian, in the life of the church. And so I want to make sure that this church understands zeal. And we understand that this is part of our calling. This is not optional. So that word, yes, you, you've heard onomatopoeia, where we come up with words that kind of describe a sound. So like smash is an onomatopoeia, where we, we have to come up with a word to try and describe the sound that something makes. And so this word zeal comes from a Greek onomatopoeia for water boiling over. And that's where we get this word zeal. You can trace its roots back to another word that means to boil. And so the idea of zeal as a word is something that cannot be contained. You know, if you've ever been cooking and you forget to watch the pot and all of a sudden you look over and the flames are higher because the water's pouring out, right? Like, you cannot contain this. This is what this word means, that it is bubbling up, it is pouring over, and you can't do anything about it because that's the natural reaction here. Jesus was described as someone of zeal. Consider John 2.17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This comes right after Jesus cleanses the temple. When he sees this affront to the holiness of God, and he does something about it. And his disciples, what do they remember? As they see Jesus behaving in this way, they remember, zeal for your house will consume me. It was said about the one who was to come. They're referencing, they're calling back to, they're remembering Psalm 69.9. So in order to understand zeal in the New Testament, we have to go back to the Old Testament and understand what God's talking about when he says that. And in Psalm 69, you see that same, that same idea, that same phrase, that same sentence, zeal for your house will consume me. And that word there, as we understand it, it takes you even further back into the Old Testament, into Numbers. So now we're back to the very start of the Old Testament, the first five books, as we're being introduced to this idea of zeal, of holiness. And in Numbers 25, we come to this story. What's happened leading up to Numbers 25 is that the people of Israel have sinned. They have sinned against God. They have violated God's holiness. They have violated God's standards for their lives. They have violated God's calling on their lives. They have sinned against God. And the consequences of that are being meted out among the people, upon the people, by the Lord. And Phineas, who is one of the priests, cannot stand for this sin. He is so bothered by it that he acts upon it immediately. And he responds to it. He can't contain it. He can't suppress it. He's like, no, this bothers me because this is an affront to God's holiness. And he does something about it. And God says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. How? In that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. That's that word, that Hebrew word for zeal. God's jealousy for his holiness. God's passion for his holiness. God's insistence upon his holiness not being marred, not being sinned against. And the Lord says, Phineas did well in that he was jealous with my jealousy. My zeal, Phineas reflected. He lived out. He applied to his life. He took my holiness as seriously as I take my holiness. And in doing so, he turned back my wrath. He goes on, he says, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy, in that same word, in my zeal. So you have this, this beautiful, beautiful truth, this reminder that must be on the forefront of our hearts 
that God takes his holiness very, very, to the perfect degree, seriously. God looks at his holiness and gives it the gravity and the weight that it deserves, and God will not tolerate anything less. He will not tolerate sin against his holiness. He will not tolerate an affront to his holiness. God is zealous for, he is passionate about his holiness. And then we go back to John, John 2, that we looked at with Jesus, and we see that, okay, God the Father is zealous for His holiness. Jesus is zealous for His holiness. So it is only right, it is only fitting, there is no other option that the church today should be zealous for the holiness of God. That we should be zealous for, passionate about, fired up about, committed to the holiness of God in our own lives and in our corporate lives. That we should be so concerned with God's holiness in our lives that we do something about it. That before we look at the world around us, before we look outside of God's people, we say, no, are God's people holy? Am I holy as one of God's, as a member of the church? Am I reflecting the same zeal that God the Father has? Am I reflecting the same zeal that Jesus the Son has? Is there something in me that is bubbling up and cannot be contained? An unbridled enthusiasm, passion, commitment to the holiness of God. Are we passionate about holiness? Do you get excited about this? Like, zeal isn't just bad. It's not just angry. It's, it's a good thing. I mean, how many of us could talk for four hours about our favorite sports team? about our favorite band, about our favorite movie, about our favorite show. How many of us could talk for 10 hours about, did you hear what was said on talk radio this morning? Let me solve all the problems. Like, how many of us could talk passionately, fired up, engaged, committed to, about all the things of this world? How many of us would struggle to fill 10 minutes of a stranger asking us to explain Scripture? How many of us talk about the church in such a way that those who don't know Christ are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but man, I want some of that. I mean, the way you talk about the church, the way you talk about Scripture, the way you talk about Jesus, the way you talk about fellowship with one another, do you do so with such a zeal and excitement that the world around you is like, I want some of that. I don't understand it. I don't know what it is, but man, I want that. That's zeal. That is an unmitigated, untarnished, undiminished, unbroken focus on the Lord. Commitment to His holiness. And when there is something that sins against it, when there is something that mars it, when there is something that detracts from it, we say, no, I will not tolerate it in my own life, in the life of the church, in this world. Like, I am given to zeal. I am bubbling up. It cannot be contained because this matters to me because it matters to God, because it matters to Christ. Yeah, I was, back when I was your age. Back when I was your age, I was excited. Not now, that's for the young, that's, that's a young man's game. Energy, excitement, that, that's a young man's game. Once we're empty nesters, then we'll go back to being enthusiastic. What, like, no, no, this is a call on every believer's life. This is a call on every man, woman, and child who follows Christ, who has said He is Lord. Listen to what Scripture says about the idea of zeal. Romans 12, 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't be slow about this. 
Don't be lazy about this. Don't be apathetic about this. Don't say that this is reserved for other people. This is for you and I. This excitement, this blessing, this passion, this fire, this consuming nature of zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. What did we look at earlier in this letter? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, when we broke down godly grief versus worldly grief. What does godly grief lead to? It leads to repentance. What does repentance lead to? It leads to salvation. What does salvation lead to? Zeal. Paul has already laid this out in this letter. A byproduct, the natural conclusion of a proper understanding of sin, repentance, and salvation should be zeal. I mean, really. If someone wiped out every debt in your life, would you be enthusiastic about it? Yeah. If somebody healed you of death, would you be enthusiastic about it? Yeah. So a natural byproduct of understanding godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, ought to be a fire for the Lord. It's what's already been laid out for us in Scripture. It's what Romans calls us to. It's what Jesus modeled for us, God models for us. And consider Titus. Consider Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, okay, so Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It says Jesus' purpose in purifying you was so that you would be a people zealous for his works, zealous for living for him. So this is, this is not only the heart of the Father, this is not only modeled by Jesus, this is not only the call of the church, this is the purpose of Jesus purifying us that we would be zealous, that we couldn't contain it, that we couldn't shove it down, that it would spill out over into our every facet of life, that the world would see a church of zeal. And what is a side benefit, a side blessing. It is enough to know that if you are zealous, you are doing so in obedience to the Father and imitation of Jesus. That's, that's more than enough to give me all the reason to say, okay, then I will be zealous. If it's what God commands of me, it's what's what God modeled for me, it's what Jesus modeled, like, that's enough. It should be enough. But what's a beautiful, incredible side benefit that we see in 2 Corinthians 9 to zeal? to passion, to fire, to a consumed life. What does he say in verse, in verse 3 there as he goes on? Or in verse 2, starting in verse 2 when he first introduces zeal, but he says what? He says, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. And he goes on to give details about what that, that looks like. Life's hard. Are you going to wake up every single day and emotionally feel like being passionate that day? No. You're going to have a week 
of double shifts in overtime. You're going to be physically exhausted because you're physically exhausted. You're going to be mentally exhausted, which causes you to get in a fight with a coworker, which causes you to get in a fight with a spouse, which causes you to get in a fight with a kid. So now you're emotionally exhausted and you're going to wake up and you're not going to naturally feel like, okay, I can't wait to be excited and enthusiastic today. Life's hard. Even more so in isolation. If I had a fire and I had two logs in the fire and I took one out and I left one in, the one that I leave in the fire is going to have a far easier time staying lit than the one that's been pulled out. And so what do we see? Your zeal has stirred up most of them. Passion and perseverance thrives in community. It is strengthened in community. It dies in isolation. It dies in separation. And so when we think that I don't have anything to offer the church, I'm not a preacher, I'm not an elder, I'm not teaching in the kid. Like, no, what you have to offer is zeal that will stir us up because you have been called to it. And your zeal will stir others up. Look at Scripture. Isaiah 41, 1 through 7. This is not just New Testament. This is New Testament, Old Testament. This is start to finish. Isaiah 41, starting in verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths if feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? So he's talking about salvation. He says, who has stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Who has stirred this up? Who has gotten this started? Who has begun this thing? And then he goes on, he says, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. So we have God who has stirred things up. He has stirred up victory. He has stirred up holiness. He has stirred up power. He has stirred up might. And then what's the conclusion as God goes on and continues to speak? He says, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil. Saying of the soldering, of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. See, it begins with God. That zeal, that fire, that passion, that victory, it's God. It's Him. It's Him working in the lives of His people. But then the direct result of that in Isaiah 41 is that as His people behold the Lord, they stir one another up. And the one says to another, be strong. And the one says to the other, hey, your work is good. Let's work on it together. Let's make it better together. As God's people behold Him, as they are stirred up by the Lord, they then in turn stir one another up. It's, it's an incredible flowing from God. What else do we see? In Acts 4, we are introduced to one of the most fascinating, I mean, nobody's minor, but he doesn't get a whole lot of stuff written about him, but we're introduced to one of the most fascinating people in the New Testament in Acts 4.36. Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Sometimes we're introduced in Scripture to people who have two names or they have a name in the Hebrew, but then they also have like an equivalent in the Greek or the Aramaic. Like, this is not Joseph's case. His name is Joseph. But then it says, whom the apostles called Barnabas, son of encouragement. 
This guy was so much about encouraging the church that the apostles were like, man, we got to nickname him something. Like, we, got, we have to call him something. What are we going to call him? Uh, the encouragement. Like, son of encouragement. What would your church nickname you? What would you be nicknamed by your fellow Christians? Wouldn't it be cool to say, yeah, my fellow Christians, my church family looked at me and was like, man, we've got to nickname him the son of encouragement, the daughter of encouragement, because that's who they are. That's what they're committed to. That's what they do for us. Why not? Why couldn't your nickname be that? Seriously, what's holding you back? You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus as the model and the example. What's holding you back? Don't let the enemy tell you something's holding you back. You've been given everything you need to be nicknamed Barnabas or whatever the female equivalent is. You have everything you've been given. You, or you have everything you need to be nicknamed the son or daughter of encouragement. You could be nicknamed the son or daughter of zeal if we would live like it, if we would pursue it. And then what does Barnabas do for the church? Acts 11, 22 to 23. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted, word that means challenged, pushed, spurred on, stirred up. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Acts 14, 20 and 22, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 28, 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, on seeing the brothers, on seeing the other unnamed people of the church, the church is just about the fancy people who get their names written down. No, on seeing the unnamed members of the church come, what does it say? Paul thanked God and took courage. Paul, the greatest church planter this world has ever known. People call him the greatest missionary this world has ever known. It says, no, when they came, when he saw them, he took courage from them, from their presence. He writes this in Romans 1. Paul writes, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. People will twist that passage and abuse that passage and they'll say, oh, Paul was going to give them like a gift of the Spirit. No, those are the Holy Spirits to give out. So what's he meaning when he says that I may impart to you some gift, some spiritual gift? Well, he tells us what he means. He says, some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul longed for the encouragement that came from fellowship with other believers. He commended it, he praised it, he lauded it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11-12, and then 5, 11 and 14, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted you, there's that word again, to challenge, to push, to stir up, to motivate, to spur on. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What is it? We exhorted you and we encouraged you to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God. Go back to Acts. Acts 11. Barnabas did what? He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
Acts 14. They returned, strengthening the souls of the disciple, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through tribulations they must go. See, exhortation is not, hey, buddy, you're fine just the way you are. Don't worry about it. You were just made angry. You were just made impatient. Just, you're okay. There's no need to change. Let's just hold hands. Let's just be peaceful. Everything's good. No, exhorting is, hey, God calls us to holiness. And because he's passionate about his holiness, because Jesus is passionate about his holiness, I'm going to be passionate about his holiness. And I'm going to be passionate about our holiness collectively. And we're going to push each other on. Are we going to do it perfectly? No. That's why we need one another. Like we just said a moment ago, if Paul needed people to encourage him and to strengthen him and to push him on, then yeah, we all need people to encourage us. I mean, like, honestly, honestly, being, just, just being genuine right now, as a pastor, as someone entrusted with leading a, a church for whatever that time frame is, it's hard for me to not put some of these New Testament guys up on pedestals. Like, Galatians says we're all equal in value, we're all equal in worth, right? So, like, I know God does not love Paul more than me. Okay, I do. I know that God does not love James more than me. That God's not like, well, you know, Peter, Peter was an A+, Sam's kind of a B. Like, I know it's not a matter of God's love. But it's hard for me as I read Scripture and I see these guys and they're like, uh, you know, on Monday we planted seven churches and on Tuesday we planted four churches and by the end of the week, 10,000 people had come to Christ. And I'm like, uh, I cleaned up coffee that I spilled. Like, it's hard to not compare myself to these guys if I'm being real. So when I read things like, man, we needed people to encourage us, that makes me feel better. I'm like, okay, if these people that we put on a pedestal, these heroes of the faith, needed to be encouraged by their brothers and sisters, then there's nothing to be ashamed about if I need that. And so what I'm saying to you all, my church family, don't feel ashamed if you need to be encouraged by your brothers and sisters. You're not less than. There's nothing wrong with saying, man, you know what? I need my church family to come alongside me and strengthen me and exhort me and challenge me and stir me up. It's the beautiful thing about the church that we are called to be zealous and we are called to be zealous in community so that why? So that we can stir up one another. Go back to 1 Thessalonians. He's writing and he says, look, we as your leadership, we exhorted you, we spurred you on, we charged you to do this. But then he goes on and he says, Therefore, encourage one another just and build one another up just as you are doing. So this is not just my responsibility for you as the church. This is not just the elders' responsibility for you. This is your responsibility to one another, to stir one another up, to encourage one another, to build one another up. Chapter 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. If you're idle in your faith, if you're idle as a disciple of Christ, we admonish you. I'm not going to apologize for that. The church is called to admonish the idol. So if you are idle as a disciple of Christ, making excuses for why this is reserved for other people, that's unacceptable. It's inappropriate. It's neglecting Scripture. Be admonished. Then he says, admonish the idol and do what? Encourage the faint-hearted. If you're faint-hearted... If you're exhausted from life, if you're overwhelmed looking at the state of the world, if you're panicking looking at your investment portfolio and international finances, if you're distraught over family relationship, like if you're faint-hearted, 
take heart. Jesus is with you. If you're faint-hearted, be encouraged. Be strengthened. If we would have kept reading in Isaiah 41, so Isaiah 41, 1 through 7, he lays out how God stirs his people up and then his people stir one another up. If we would have kept reading in Isaiah 41, we would have gotten to verse 10. And Isaiah 41, 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So if you're here today, if you're joining us online and you would describe yourself as maybe faint-hearted, take heart, friend. Come talk to me. Let's grab coffee. Let's, I, don't, I drink water. You can make fun of me for being a kid. That's fine. But you drink coffee, I'll drink water, and we'll encourage one another. And we'll remind ourselves that God is with us and that greater is he who is with us than he who is with the world. We'll remind ourselves that Jesus is Alpha and Omega, that he rides at the head of heaven's armies, that from his mouth proceeds a double-edged sword that his eyes are like fire, that his hair is like lightning, that victory greets him at every step. We'll remind each other of this, and we'll take heart, and we'll take courage. And this is the privilege of the church, to stir one another up, to be people of zeal. Help the weak, be patient with them all. We'll also be patient with each other. What did we say back when we introduced the idea of relentless pursuit, a culture of relentless pursuit? One thing I do, I don't consider what's behind me. I keep my eyes focused on what's ahead of me, and I press on. I run the race with perseverance. What did we say when we talked about that? We know not everyone's at the same place. We know it. We know not everyone's moving at the same pace. We know everyone's not growing in the same way. That's okay. What we don't want, what we won't settle for, what we won't accept is just refusing to grow. So if we're in different places, that's okay. If we're moving at different paces, that's okay. We're going to grow together. We're going to be zealous together. We're going to pursue these things together. It's going to bubble up and spill out of our lives together. This is what zeal does for the church. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day. Are we in yesterday right now? Are we in yesterday? No? Are we in tomorrow? Okay, so what would you call right now? Today. Okay, good. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So yeah, I get fired up. Yeah, I'm a pedal to the metal guy. Yeah, I'm forge ahead. I quoted Lord of the Rings a couple weeks ago, go forth and fell darkness. Yeah, let's do that. Why? Because it's today. And as long as it's today, I'm, I'm going to exhort. I'm going to challenge. So if you're thinking that, okay, well, if we can just get to tomorrow, then Sam will ease up. No, because tomorrow it'll be today. And so I'm going to exhort. And we're going to do it to one another. And you know what? There are going to be todays where I need you all to exhort me. And I need the elders to say, come on, man, pick your head up, get back in the fight, keep going. And there are going to be days where your elders are going to need you to do that for them. And this is what the church does. It looks at the zeal of God. It looks at the zeal of Jesus. And it responds with zeal itself, stirring one another up, pushing one another on, continuing to fight. Hebrews 10.24, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. 
Think about it. Put the effort in. We've got to work at this. And then part of it is, why do we need to accept this stirring up from one another? Why do we need to allow one another to have this place in our lives to say these things to us? Because this is what we have committed to. And that's what Paul lays out in these next several verses. In verse 3, going back to chapter 9, what does he say in verse 3? He says, I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. Paul's reminding the people, hey, you said you were going to do this. So do it. Church, if you're here today and you are a disciple of Christ, like Phil said at the start with communion, you're someone who has confessed your sin, believed that Jesus is Lord, asked him to be Lord of your life, submitted to his authority, you have committed to being a person zealous for holiness. You have committed to being a person zealous for the works of the Lord. So do it. Follow through. Make good on what you have said. Earlier this year, Tim, who's our treasurer, extended, let's go back to Thessalonians, such patience with me. One of the logistical parts about being on staff is submitting my credit card receipts. And I get a nice, easily organized sheet of, hey, you spent this here, and then I just attach the receipt to it. They could not make it any easier on me. And I was woefully behind on my receipts. And Tim was so patient with me. But he had to remind me, hey, you, you said you were going to do this, so do it. So I finally caught up. I made myself do it. I caught up. And then the next time we got a credit card statement with the receipts, you know what I did? Within 20 minutes, I sat down to do it. Why? Because I was embarrassed. I was truthfully embarrassed that as a grown adult, I was neglecting such a simple thing I had said I would do. And I didn't like having to be reminded, hey, man, stapler, click put it in the mailbox. I was ashamed of it. This is what Paul's saying to the church. He's saying, hey, you promised you were going to do something, so do it. Because if you don't, and then they come waiting for it, ready for it, that's embarrassing if you're not capable, if you won't follow through on what you committed to. So if we have committed to living for the Lord, if we have committed to being people of zeal, if we have committed to being disciples of Christ, growing and looking like Him, advancing His kingdom, advancing His mission, then church, follow through and do it. It's that simple. Matthew 25, 1-13, Jesus is speaking about His return and He gives an example of bridesmaids and the bridegroom coming. And He says, what, there's a whole big group of bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom. And some of them thought ahead, some of them were ready, some of them planned, and they had oil for their lamps so that when the bridegroom came, they would be ready. But some of them didn't. Some of them were nearsighted. Some of them didn't think ahead. And so they didn't bring oil. They weren't prepared. And when the bridegroom came, they weren't ready to follow through on what they said they were going to do. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25. We see it in Luke 14, 27 to 30. Jesus is speaking. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
if we say we're going to do something, do it. Follow through. Make good. Scripture lays it out. Take responsibility. Now let's bring it back to the church. Let's bring it back corporately instead of just individually. Let's go back to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm reading a lot of articles. I'm hearing a lot of pop. I'm hearing a lot of the church say with very strong certainty, we're like three years away from Jesus coming back, if not sooner. Some people, we're like two weeks away. We're like 24 hours away. Like, it seems like the church is collectively saying, hey, we are convinced that this timeline is accelerating rapidly at this point. Okay, so then you know what our response needs to be? An even greater intensity for the things of the church. I mean, if you truly think that Jesus' return is more imminent now than ever before, if you really think that, gee, okay, Jesus, by the end of this year, is going to be back, then this should be the time period of your life that is most marked by fire and enthusiasm and passion for his mission. Encouraging one another. What? All the more as you see the day drawing near. And guess what? Every day we're one day closer. So every day we're getting a little more near. Whenever that's going to be. So that means that every day we should be increasing in our passion. We should be increasing in our zeal. We should be increasing in our commitment to his mission. We should be increasing in our commitment to the lost. We should be increasing in our commitment to one another. As we see the day drawing near. If you want Jesus to come back, ask yourself the simple question, what are you doing to hasten that day? Whoa, wait, what? Hasten the day? What does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 14? What condition must be met for him to return? Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of mine will be preached to all kingdoms, all ends of the earth, all peoples, and then the end will come. So if we really want Jesus to come back, then we should be adamant about focusing on preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. So if we think this is happening, then make good on what we said we were going to do about it. Make good on what we said we were going to do as the church until Jesus does return. Respond with zeal. Stir one another up. Encourage one another. Spur the church forward. And why? How does this passage conclude? Why do we do what we do? What's our motivation? Where's our heart in all of this? He says, hey, look, you said you were going to have a gift ready for the church. You said you were going to bless them in this way. You said you were going to do this. Make good on it. Why? Arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. That word willing gift can also be translated as a blessing. The word translated exaction comes from the Greek word for greed. And so what it's saying, what Paul is writing to the church is, look, if you're doing this just so you can get something back, that's not a gift. That's not a blessing. That's transactional. And the Christian is never called to be transactionally minded. Okay, well, I'm going to do something nice for Trevor. So in two weeks, when I have to move that heavy couch, I'm going to be like, hey, remember when I lent you 20 bucks? Now you owe me. That's not a gift. That's not a blessing. That's a commodity exchange. So why do we do these things? Why do we pursue zealousness? Why do we pursue holiness? Why do we stir one another up? Why do we encourage one another? Why do we spur the church on? Why do we fight to advance the kingdom of God? Not so that we can get patted on the back by one another, not so that we can get something later, but we do it because we want to bless people. 
We do it because we want to obey the Lord. We do it because we want to look like Jesus. It has to flow from a heart of desire. It's what he's calling the church to in 2 Corinthians 9. It's what God has called his people to from the beginning. Genesis 33, 11, Jacob and Esau. Tragic story of relationship gone wrong that gets mended beautifully by the Lord. And when Jacob and Esau reunite, Jacob brings a gift to Esau. And Esau tries to deny it. He says, no, 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 I don't need it. Keep it for yourself. And Jacob says this, Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with, graciously with me and because I have enough. Then he urged him and he took it. He said, look, I'm not doing this to get something from you. I'm doing this to bless you because God has blessed me. And so I'm just responding in obedience to that. Consider Matthew 6, 1 to 4. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Luke 14, 12-14, Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's what the church is called to. We're called to a zeal for God's holiness. And in a zeal for God's holiness, who cares if you get paid back? So what if I've encouraged you 17 times and you've only encouraged me two times? So man, the scales are really tipping in my favor and you better step your game. No, who cares? Because I'm not keeping score and neither should you. Who cares if you've done something for this person over and over again and they've never once helped you when you had to move? Like, who cares? We're not keeping track. We're seeking to bless because we are passionate about the holiness of the Lord. We're seeking to bless because we are committed to looking like Christ. We're seeking to bless because it's, said, it's what we said we would do. And we're going to follow through on it. In this very simple passage, Paul lays out incredible, incredible truths as inspired by the Holy Spirit, as written by God, about the church and how it relates to one another. And how a passion for holiness that bubbles up, stirs up one another, and is a blessing. And that is is an incredible privilege. I mean, are you kidding me? The Lord of the universe, the Creator, said, hey, you will have the opportunity to eternally stir someone else up. Right? Like, eternally significant. You'll have the opportunity to stir up your brothers and sisters to what is eternally meaningful. What a gift. What a chance we have to look like Christ. So let's go after it with everything we have. Let's go after it with zeal. And let's see what the church looks like when we stir one another up. As we consider these things this week, let's apply the Acts model as we pray, as we grow in prayer, as we become more familiar with prayer, more comfortable with prayer. 
Let's read Isaiah 59 and Philippians 1, two chapters. We're going to read those two chapters. All of us will read them together, talk about them with one another, send a text, give a call, write a letter, and then respond two weeks later. Acts 4.13, let's continue to memorize it, continue to internalize it, continue to allow this to be scripture that shapes our hearts, that shapes our lives. I mean, you want to talk about zeal, you want to talk about bubbling up, you want to talk about can't be contained, consider Acts 4.13. And then the apply, the do something with this. Who is one person, identify one person, then do something about it, but identify one person in your immediate biological family, cousin, nephew, whatever, someone you are literally related to. Who is one person in your, in your biological family that you could stir up and encourage forward in good works? That you could spur on in advancement of the kingdom this week? Take responsibility for your family. And then take responsibility for your church family. Who is one person in your church family, look around the room, who is one person in your church family who you could reach out to this week to encourage, to stir up, to spur on, to push forward, to say, hey, Let's go after this together. Hey, let's do this together. Hey, let's take ownership of this together. And then do it. If you don't have anybody's number, reach out to me. I will give you 10 people's number and let you pick. No excuses. Let's be zealous. Let's be holy. Let's exhort one another as long as today is today. And let's be ready when Jesus comes back. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of getting to be stirred up by you. We thank you for the gift of getting to look at you in the work of your hands, to behold you, who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and to be stirred up by you, to be stirred up by your victory. Thank you for the reminder of your zeal for your holiness, of Jesus' zeal for your holiness. Lord, may we reflect that zeal. May we stir one another up. God, purify your church. Drive us forward. Use us as a battering ram against the gates of hell. We give you all of this. Hold us to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.